The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Eli Estrin presents his lecture, Serving Jews Who Serve. This is to the warriors, the women and men who put their lives on the line day after day to defend a nation we call home. To the F-16 fighter pilot in Okinawa, Japan, who is maintaining a fragile peace in the East China Sea. To the cadet who is training at West Point to fulfill her patriotic dream of military service. To the foot soldier deployed in Korea who is keeping nations from war. These are women and men of the U.S. military entire family units who can be stationed abroad for months at a time, where Jewish connection and community is hard to come by. They live for something greater than themselves. The strength of our democracy depends on their physical, mental, and spiritual readiness to give their all on the battlefront. We are pleased to announce that in partnership with the Jewish Welfare Board, JLI has been awarded by the U.S. Army the 2021 to 2022 contract to provide religious adult education to all U.S. Army installations around the globe. We thank and salute our partners, Rabbis Elson and Kaplowitz from the JWB and Rabbi Estrin from Aleph Institute for their partnership, support, and encouragement in making this important milestone possible. Eight years ago, I found myself at Maxwell Air Force Base doing officer training school and uh, standing in front of my flight. I've got a guide on, which is a flag if you know. Standing in front, you're trying to stay at attention, and you're trying to do everything you can to be done absolutely, absolutely perfect. Because the drill sergeants, they're watching you and they want to see mistakes. That's really what they want to do. They want to see the mistakes. And one of the drill sergeants, not mine, but one of the other drill sergeants, I see him walking towards me, walking towards me, closer, closer. And I'm standing straighter. My spine is about to snap from standing straight. And my arm is twisted around the guide on. I'm like, am I doing everything right? Am I doing everything right? If I'm doing everything right? Comes closer, closer, closer. He comes right into me, points at this. And says, what is that? A tombstone? <laughs> I said, no, it's a Jewish chaplain's pin. He said, oh, I've never seen one of those before, and walks away. <laughs> that was one of the, oh, kind of melted right there with the guide on. But the question, of course, is how does a Chabad rabbi find himself facing down a drill sergeant? And uh, for that, we're going to actually take a little bit of a history dive and talk a little bit about the chaplaincy first and then we'll talk a, bit, a little bit more about what I do specifically because I've got a really cool dual role. So the chaplaincy actually goes back to actually before the country itself. Um, George Washington wanted to make sure that he had chaplains in his units even prior to the Revolutionary War and he actually wrote a beautiful line. He said, the want of a chaplain does, I humbly conceive, reflect dishonor upon the regiment as all of their officers are allowed. He understood that chaplains are a critical part of the system. You can't just have a military that runs on 
guns and bullets alone. You have to have somebody that's caring for the souls. And he also understood that there are some people that need to keep, be able to keep people in line, make sure that the soldiers don't just fight, and along with that, of course, go and pillage, but they, they follow good order and discipline. And so therefore, the chaplain corps was actually authorized almost immediately. Um, July 29th, 1775 was when the chaplain corps was, was uh, authorized. There were two rules to be a chaplain. Number one, you had to be ordained. Number two, you had to be a Christian. That was the way it was. And this actually, in fact, Catholics weren't even allowed to be chaplains until the mid-1820s. Fast forward to the Civil War. I know that we don't like to speak about that here, uh, but we're going to speak about it anyway. <laughs> I'm a northerner. <laughs> um, I live in Florida now, but basically Florida nowadays is north. <laughs> and there was a regiment Right, side out, right outside of Philadelphia, commanded by a guy by the name of Colonel Max Friedman. And he had several Jews in his regiment. This is a cavalry regiment. And Colonel Friedman decided, you know what, we're going to elect, because back in those days, you could actually choose who was going to be your chaplain as long as it fit those two criteria. And he chose one of his men. His, he had a name, Captain Michael Allen. So Captain Allen was not ordained, nor was he, was he Christian. He was Jewish, he had actually served as a Sunday school teacher, and he knew how to basically preach on Sundays, and he basically gave universalist messages, and people really, really liked it, and this was great. The first Jewish chaplain, in theory, because a YMCA uh, volunteer came through the camp, found out that the chaplain was not Christian, put in an IG report, and soon, Captain Allen was asked to resign his commission. And this infuriated colonels, the Colonel Friedman. In general, colonels, one of the things they do is get infuriated. That's, that's part of their job. Um, but he decided that he was going to challenge this law. And he asked Rabbi Arnold Fischel, who was actually ordained and, of course, was not Christian, he asked him to join the army in order to be able to challenge this law. And Rabbi Fischel, in fact, did ask to be given a commission, and it was turned down, not because he wasn't ordained, but because he wasn't Christian. And Rabbi Fischel went with this to the president. President Lincoln had an open-door policy, and you were able to be able to walk into his office and tell him whatever you wanted to. And two days later, Lincoln wrote back to him saying that he's going to work on a new law to be able to allow Jewish chaplains. That law passed Senate on March 12, 1862, and the House on July 17, 1862. And from that point on, Jewish chaplains were allowed. Rabbi Fischel did not serve, but Reverend Jacob Frankel was the first he was known as the sweet singer of Israel. He served in a hospital unit. And then Reverend Ferdinand Sarna was the next uh, Jewish chaplain allowed. He actually fought in a small battle we might have heard of called Gettysburg. His horse was shot out from under him. He was wounded. He was sent to the hospital. And hospitals in the Civil War, for those of you who are history buffs, you know that they weren't exactly special places to be. And he left the hospital. So he was also not only the first Jewish chaplain to serve under fire, he was also the Jewish chaplain to go, first Jewish chaplain to go AWOL. <laughs> but he was forgiven for that. <laughs> From that point on, things were pretty calm. Um, but then, of course, World War I came around. 
250,000 Jews served in World War I. And as a result of that, there was a massive call out to be able to get chaplains. And uh, over 200 uh, rabbis requested commission, only 23 received. And of those, 17 actually went over to Europe. In World War II, 550,000 Jews served. And with that massive number, you would think that there should have been a massive amount of Jewish rabbis to be able to serve them. But throughout World War II, there are only 311 Jewish chaplains. And as a result of that, of course, they, need, they had to do, of course, massive, massive programs. We in Chabad, we like to pride ourselves in terms of the size of our programs. And the biggest Seder every single year is in Nepal with some 2,000 backpackers. And I guess that's a pretty big Seder. Um, but in World War II, some of these chaplains were putting on seders for 5,000 soldiers at a time in wartime conditions. So there's some fascinating stories about what was going on during that time. But one of the more important things that happened with regards to the chaplaincy was what's known as the four chaplains. Three of these guys were Christian, uh, Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Chaplain Good, here was a Jewish chaplain, as you can t see it tell from his pin. They were on the USS Dorchester, and it was hit by a uh, torpedo from a Nazi sub. And the Dorchester went down really quickly. In general, the way it worked in those ships is that the enlisted guys were below, the officers were above decks, and people were trying to get above decks. They didn't bring their life jackets, and these four men handed their life jackets to other people, and as people were trying to get off the ship, they were comforting people, uh, giving people, um, you know, whatever chizuk, what we would call encouragement that they could possibly give. And the last they were seen, the four of them were, were arm in arm, singing some songs together as the ship went down. And so they're known as the legendary four chaplains because this created a sense of unity among the chaplain corps and among the, the military in general. The United States government recognized that and immediately they made a stamp about this and they really, really tried to push the story because of the importance of working together despite our religious backgrounds. Even though these three chaplains, the three Christian chaplains from, were from different denominations and of course there was a Jewish chaplain there as well, this was a very, very important, important part of what the chaplaincy turned into. And nowadays, on many bases, you'll see either a memorial or a chapel that's called the Four Chaplains Chapel. And they just celebrated the 75th anniversary of this uh, just a, f a few years ago. Another important uh, element of World War II was at Iwo Jima. The first Jewish chaplain of the U.S. Marine Corps was a reform rabbi by the name of Roland Gittelson. And he was an interesting character because of the fact that he was a hardcore pacifist until Pearl Harbor, when he thought, oops, <laughs> maybe this wasn't such a good idea. And he joined the Navy, and they, where do they send a pacifist? To the Marine Corps. <laughs> so he ends up being a Marine chaplain in one of the bloodiest battles of the war. And after the war, they were consecrating the cemetery. He was only a first lieutenant which is an O2, the second level of officership, and as a result of that, he was not very high ranking, but because he was a Jewish chaplain, he was working directly under the command chaplain. The command chaplain wanted to show him respect and to show the Jews who fought their respect, and so he asked him to be, to deliver the remarks 
at the consecration of the cemetery, which was gonna be in front of the press, four-star generals, massive, massive amounts of PR. The other chaplains were furious about this. They put up a big stink, and uh, the command chaplain didn't want to back down, but uh, Chaplain Gittleson did back down. He said, listen, I, this is just causing too much of a mess. And he delivered his remarks in the consecration of the Jewish section of the cemetery. And he gave his little speech. It's known as theirs is the highest and purest democracy. And he spoke about the facts, here lie blacks and whites, Republicans and Democrats, Jews, Christians, and those from other faiths. And he spoke about the fact that here they are, they're living the highest and purest democracy because at this point they're all equal. Ironically, one of the chaplains who was on his side was furious by what had happened in the pure anti-Semitism. He took copies of Gittleson's speech and gave it to the press. And the speech was published in newspapers across the entire United States. And it became a speech that was read in Congress every single year on Memorial Day. And so the irony is that this speech that was originally going to be given in front of several hundred people ended up being something that has, is probably known as the best and most well-known speech ever given by a chaplain. And the only reason why that happened was because of anti-Semitism. <laughs> So the irony is, is absolutely beautiful. Um, Gilson still struggled with his, with his pacifism and, and everything like that afterwards, even though he realized that, that, that the United States was fighting a good war, but he was a, uh, an, an, an certainly an interesting character. A third very, very important part of the chaplaincy then was the liberation and the DP camps, because the military forces were coming through Germany, and the point was really, to kill out the Nazi regime. And when they liberated the camps, the first response to the people in the camps were, go home. Now, we all know there was no home. But there was a commonality between the chaplains and the Jews there, not only in terms of their Jewish faith, but also a common language. They both spoke Yiddish. And so the chaplains were able to start creating what eventually would become the DP camps. And they did all sorts of things in order to be able to do that. There was one chaplain in particular, um, Abraham Klausner, who, was, who basically, he told his command, he said, oh, I've been tasked to this particular area, which was a complete and absolute fabrication. <laughs> and so he, technically speaking, went AWOL as well. But they were fighting a war, so they were like, okay. You know, they didn't ask any questions. And he started putting up reports, sending the reports up. Those reports eventually went to General Eisenhower, and those reports eventually went to uh, President Truman. And eventually, President Truman realized that the situation was a total mess and appointed a Jewish chaplain by the name of Judah Nadich to be the, uh, the responsible for Jewish affairs in Europe. And that began the settling of the situation. But before that, you had chaplains who were actually stealing military supplies to give to the Jews. You had situations where actually German POWs were being treated better than the survivors because they were being held with, you know, in accordance with the Geneva Conventions, and the Jews were just like, well, what, what, what do we do with you? And the chaplains realized this was a total mess, and so they were very, very, very important, integral to be able to settle that situation, which was uh, not well known, but very, very uh, an important part of history. 
Fast forward to Korea, there were only 30 chaplains in Korea, and then over to Vietnam, something else happened. And the way chaplaincy worked until then is that the three major uh, endorsing, uh, excuse me, the three major seminaries in the United States, Yeshiva University, uh, Hebrew Union College, and uh, Jewish Theological Seminary, did a draft. And they would take some of their graduating students and send them off into the military. But in Vietnam, because of the liberalism, the left-leaning left elements of HUC and JTS, they withdrew from this draft. So as a result, there were very, very few uh, chaplains serving in Vietnam. One of them is my boss, Chaplain Colonel uh, Sandy Dresden. And so it's an amazing thing to be able to hear from him the things that he was doing during that time. Now, I fully disagree with what they did because as chaplains, we're not we're non-combatants, we don't fight, we don't fire bullets. Uh, chaplain Dresden did tell me that he had a 45 in his chaplain's kit. <laughs> it was hidden behind the grape juice. <laughs> behind there was a kiddush cup and there was a false bottom, behind that was, was a 45. Um, uh, but in any case, I was once speaking at a Chabad house and a guy was wearing a bomber jacket that said Vietnam War on it and he came over to me afterwards, he said, he gave me a big hug and he said, where were you when I was in Vietnam? That was a tragedy, because even if it's somebody who's not exactly on your spiritual alignment in terms of reform and conservative or whatever it is, you need to be able to have somebody who speaks up to Jewish needs. And so I think that was, a, it was absolutely a wrong decision by those, uh, those schools to withdraw from this quote-unquote draft. Moving forward, a very interesting case. Um, two Jewish guys at a small college called Harvard sued the army for having a chaplaincy. And they said that because of the fact that the government should have no recognition of any religion whatsoever, so therefore the army should not be allowed to have a chaplaincy, and as taxpayers, we should not pay for this. This went through the courts, and one of the people who was involved with the case was a Jewish chaplain, an Orthodox rabbi, as well as a lawyer. His name is Israel Drazen. My boss, Chaplain Dresden, was also involved, but Rabbi Dresden was actually a critical element of the defense of the chaplaincy, and now he is known as the man who saved the chaplaincy. And in this picture, actually, he's being given his uh, one star, he became a one-star general in the army as a reservist. But his argument to save the chaplaincy was that you can't have civilians going into, into military zones and you, in order to be able to protect every soldier, airman, marine, or whatever it is, everybody's constitutional right for their free exercise of religion, you need to have an officer that is a military officer, not a civilian, who understands and can deal with military regulations in combat zones that cannot work with civilians, with volunteers, with people from the outside. And that was the argument that, that saved the chaplaincy, and that's something that really had major reverberations. So again, thanks to a Jewish chaplain, we have chaplaincy in general. So now we're up to today. Today there are 75 Jewish chaplains, and that's not including auxiliary roles, which are basically volunteer, like the Civil Air Patrol, or Coast Guard Auxiliary, or um, militia, state militia. And these 75 Jewish chaplains are split up, reserve, guard, air force, air national guard. They're scattered all over the place. About 
I think it's 35 of those are actually active duty. For me, myself, I am a reservist. I'm stationed at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa. I live in North Miami Beach, and I go to Tampa as much as I can. And we'll talk a little bit more about what the, the chaplain does and all that in just a moment. But I want to kind of take even actually a further step back, because we started off by saying, what is a Chabad rabbi doing in uniform? And for that, we're going to actually go back even further. Something that's not very well known in Chabad history is the fact that the Chabad Rebbes, leaders of Chabad, have always been incredibly, incredibly concerned about the welfare of Jews in uniform. So much so that the third Rebbe of Chabad, so now we're talking about the mid-1800s, he had an open-door policy for no one but soldiers. If a soldier came to his office, they didn't have to speak to the secretary, they went directly into his office. And I know that that was followed up as well by one of his successors, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, also had that open door policy, although I think they had to work with the secretary, but they were given um, carte blanche, they were allowed to come into the Rebbe's office to be able to get blessing or, or advice or anything of the sort. And the Rebbe himself, our Rebbe, was heavily involved with Jews in the military when he moved to the United States. He himself was, of course, as people know, was working in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. But among the first uh, elements of his work dealing with Jewry was the distribution of tefillin to soldiers. They also published booklets, sidurim, as well as a letter from the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe that were given out to hundreds of thousands. I don't know the exact numbers. And actually today, we distribute that same letter in these little booklets, and I have one in my own wallet, so that people have, that Jews who are serving, have what's referred to as courage and safety through faith and trust in God, which was the previous Rebbe's uh, address to Jews in uniform in order that they should be able to have uh, that spiritual element of service. So this crossed into my own in, uh, history, and when in 1990, I was at one of these massive Lag Bomer parades in front of, in front of uh, 770, the Rebbe was there, and uh, Chaplain Goldstein, a legendary chaplain who ended up serving for 30 years, um, came across in front of 770 in a tank. And this was just like this incredible, incredible thing. I mean, for I was 10 years old at the time, seeing this tank come across in front of 770, Chaplain Goldstein uh, sticking out of the top of the tank and saluting the Rebbe from the tank. I, that was just really, really, really cool. I remember walking down Eastern Parkway and seeing the, the, uh, the holes that the tank made in the, in the asphalt. <laughs> it was just this really, really amazing sight. So we knew we knew that the rabbi had tremendous respect and tremendous concern for Jews in the U.S. military. That was just something that was visceral from this, this experience. A few years later, I was already a teenager. I was 18 years old, and I was working for an organization in my spare time called the Aleph Institute, which is now my work as well. But then I was just doing some volunteer work in Pittsburgh, and we were shipping out uh, Seder plates to prisoners as well as to soldiers. It was a funny incident, which my brother probably remembers. Um, there was two Seder plates that needed to be shipped off to Japan and to Bosnia. So we're, this is 1998, I believe it was. And I, have, I brought them home with me on Friday afternoon, expecting to go to the post office, and I realized I left the shipping labels at 
the office, which was in downtown Pittsburgh. And at that point, there was no significant internet connection to be able to get that kind of information. So I had to go back to the office on a Friday afternoon and get those and go to the main post office in, in Pittsburgh, which was even somewhere else, to be able to get those packages off to these soldiers. I did that, but now we're already running up towards Shabbat. And I'm fighting through traffic in, in my parents' 12-seater uh, van. And I, I, the sun's going down. And I'm an 18-year-old. And I'm like, OK, well, what do you got to do? Well, there was a breakdown lane that opened up. So I quickly scooted into the breakdown lane and 65 miles per hour through the breakdown lane. Right before my exit, if anybody knows Pittsburgh, Squirrel Hill, right before the Squirrel Hill exit, there was a you know, municipal tow truck waiting for accidents to happen. And I see the guy dive back into his truck because he sees me coming down the highway like this. And so I just went back around traffic, just back into traffic and cut him off again and kept on going and get off the exit. Well, he starts following with, with his lights on. And I'm like, I don't need to stop for you. You're just a tow truck. <laughs> So he caught up to me at a red light and jumped out of my car with several expletives, asked me what I was doing. I said, it's my Sabbath. I really don't have time to talk to you <laughs> and went home. And uh, that night, a couple ended up at our door um, just to talk, give me a little conversation about road rage and what might happen. And please don't do that again. <laughs> but that was just a humorous experience. But the important thing was I knew that I needed to get these Seder plates out to these Jews. And because otherwise, they would not be able to serve, they would not be able to celebrate Pesach. I knew that the rotator flights to go to those two places were gonna, was going to leave on Sunday or Monday, whatever it was, in order to get there for Pesach. They had to get out that day. And that was really, really uh, just a, a fun little anecdote. Moving forward, um, I became the director of Chabad at University of Washington in Seattle. My wife and I directed that for 13 years. And during that time, we had several students who came in. Some of them were coming from the military. Some of them were going into the military. And I felt that there was a gap in, in how much I could possibly serve them because I didn't really understand the ranks. I didn't really understand what was going on the systems. And I really want, wanted to try to help them out. And I, kept, I remember telling my wife several times, you know, if only the military would allow somebody to have a beard in uniform. Now, of course, Chaplain Goldstein over here has a beard. That was because he started serving in 1978. And in 1978, he was given a waiver. And that stayed with him throughout his career. But in 1981, the beards were completely disallowed. And that was because they were trying to put a stop to a lot of the uh, hippie influences that had kind of crept into the military as a result of the Vietnam War, post-Vietnam War. And so they're like, OK, we're going absolutely clean cut. And that was the approach. So he was allowed to keep his beard, but nobody else. It was just, you know, this would be an interesting thing to do. Now, I had two students in particular, two anecdotes that really, really drove this home. One was a student of mine. Um, his name is JB. JB's father was in the military. His father was not Jewish. His mother, his mother's mother actually was Jewish um, and unfortunately converted out. JB found out he was Jewish when, I, when we had a conversation on campus. And um, he eventually joined the army himself. He became a ranger and went out to Afghanistan. So the two of us had been very, very, very close. And in fact, we still are. But when he got back from Afghanistan and stood on my porch, I opened the door, JB! 
and he gave me a look which I can only describe as a thousand yard stare. And I don't know whether it was like, man, you don't get it, or man, the things that I've seen that I can't tell you about. I don't know exactly what it was. And I actually never asked him. But I remember viscerally my heart falling out, like, I wish I could do something for you. You need something, but I can't help you. So that was number one. Number two was another one of my students uh, joined the army, and he was shipped out to basic training on Erev Pesach. So I told him, I said, listen, you should be able to have a Seder. He goes, you don't understand. I said, I, you know, there's, you have a constitutional right to, your, to, to keep your religion. He goes, you don't get basic. I said, there's got to be a chaplain there that you can speak about. It's, there's something. There's no reason why your rights should be taken away like that. He said, you really don't understand. I was so frustrated because here's a guy who would have a Seder. He would do something, but he's going to basic the day before Pesach, and I had no idea what to do. I knew that I could call the base, Fort Campbell, or for Jackson, I don't remember where he was going, and try to speak to a chaplain, but I was like, who do I talk to? What do I tell them? What do I do? And that absolute lack of, of any idea what to do was incredibly frustrating. So around this same time, the Aleph Institute was fighting for the rights for a Jewish chaplain to be able to wear a beard. Chaplain Mendy Stern eventually was given the right, and that was because Aleph threatened to sue the army. They actually screwed up. They, they okayed his papers after telling him no for many years. Then they okayed his papers by mistake. So it was a bureaucratic snafu. And then they're like, oh, no, 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 we're, we're taking it back. And that was basically our in. We said to the, or Aleph, I wasn't with Aleph at that point. Um, he said, okay, you really have one choice right now. Either you let him in or we sue you. And they said, let's think about this. And after about a month, they said, okay, you know, because they realized that they had no case. There's absolutely no reason whatsoever for, to be able to disallow a beard for religious reasons. So Chaplain Stern was the first one to be able to get in after the, uh, after the beard law was, was revoked. Shortly after that, the DOD sent out a notice saying, okay, we'll allow beards in, in service. So at that point, I decided to, uh, you know, why not? Let's see what this is all about, see if, if we can do something about it. So we went to a recruiter, and the recruiter was actually a National Guard recruiter. Um, and again, we were living in Seattle, and Seattle is not a particularly religious place, to say the least. And in fact, most people, when they hear that I was a rabbi, they're like, okay, excuse me, there's a garbage collector that I'd rather speak to. <laughs> and dealing with that all the time, we walked into the recruiter's office, and I introduced myself. I said, hi, I'm a rabbi. I'm thinking about joining the military. Her immediate response was, you're a rabbi, you're a gem, we need you. I said to my wife, they have me at hello. <laughs> and that was really the beginning of the conversation, but I didn't know that I really wanted to go through this completely, so I went to a friend of mine who had served in the Marines, and I knew he was serving in the Air Force Reserve. I said, what do you think about this, Mike? He said, oh, I think you'd be phenomenal, but why would you want to go to the National Guard? I said, I don't know, you know, that was the first thought. He said, come to the Air Force. <laughs> more intelligent here. <laughs> I said, okay, I like airplanes. <laughs> and that was basically the, the, uh, the process. And, um, but part of that was also uh, 
in order to be able to make sure, because I didn't feel like that, that I was particularly macho, military macho or anything like that, he suggested that I should come to a very special event. And that was the Aleph Convention. Every single year we have a convention in Florida where we bring together Jews in the military and we spend Shabbat together uh, as well as a training conference. And he said, come to this event and you'll get to meet other chaplains, you'll get to meet other people and you'll see whether, whether you like it. I went there for one day, I was like, okay, this is great. I love these people. And this picture is actually just from uh, two years ago, not, not the one that I was at. Um, but that, that convention really, really sealed the deal for me. And in um, 2013, September 2013, I swore in to become a chaplain in the United States Air Force and then went to uh, officer training school the following summer, 2014, and then basic chaplaincy school in uh, the winter of 2016. My first duty station was at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, and then later I became a cha the chaplain at Maxwell, and then now I'm at MacDill. So with all that background, what do chaplains do? Chaplains are responsible for number one religious accommodation, and that's obviously kind of really why I joined, so to speak, but we're also responsible for counseling and morale, as well as advising command. And just to explain some of those things, religious accommodation, in a military circumstance, you can't necessarily get everything you need. So, uh, for example, uh, you know, you have a basic private, you know, private who's at basic training, and he wants to keep Shabbos, he needs to get permission not to go to live fire training on Shabbos. And so it's the chaplains who work with him to be able to bring that request up the chain of command and to get a letter that allows him to keep that religious aspect. And the same thing with regards to many other elements, to keep filling with them during basic training. Most of the religious accommodation is, is oftentimes during basic, but I just spoke to one of my friends the other day, who's now, he was active duty and now he's a reservist, and he's a doctor, and he was doing all sorts of things in order to be able to keep Shabbos. And his commander said to him, he's like, you know, you're, you're, you're doing all these little things in order to keep Shabbos. Why don't we just give you permission, and that way you don't need to worry about it. And he was absolutely tickled by that, and uh, you know, he was getting my advice in terms of what they need to write, how they need to write it. And so my very first experience that was, was truly what I f when I felt that I was doing something in the military was actually with one of these religious accommodations. I had a Jewish airman who was working in what's called Western Air Defense Sector, and that's at Joint Base Lewis-McChord. They are responsible for watching everything in the airspace in the United States between Canada and Mexico up to the Mississippi. Everything that's there. This is a post 9-11 system that they created and so obviously it's a massive responsibility and they are 24-7 on a wartime footing. And so therefore she was given permission as a religious Jew of course to do that on Shabbos when necessary because that's considered pikuach nefesh. That's considered protecting lives. But the difference is she might be able to do her missions, but what about things that her commander expects her to do, like mopping the floor, training modules, responding to emails from across the room, things like that. Or it would get even stranger with regards to, for example, there was a, you know, everything in, in that entire uh, building is completely electronic. So there are all sorts of issues with signing into rooms and even the electronic bathrooms, all these issues that she was dealing with. And so I sat down with her 
and had a conversation with her. We, I said, we need to, to have, create a religious accommodation for you. But first, I went to speak to her immediate commander. So both of us at that point were both captains. And he uh, saw me come in with a beard, and he immediately, you know, one eyebrow went out. At that point, there were no other people, as far as I know, wearing beards in, in the military, in the, in the Air Force. It's not, it's, a, it's more common nowadays. And he said, listen, anything I tell her to do is part of the mission. So she's got to do it. I don't care. I said, okay, now I need to obviously go up another level. So I went to my commander, who was a chaplain, and I said, sir, we need to sit down with Eva and create some kind of religious accommodation. He said, okay, let's go visit her. So we went to go visit her, we sat down, and Eva starts explaining everything that's going on with, with, the, with the intricacies of what she's trying to do and how she's trying to keep Shabbos. And I started getting really frustrate, frustrated, and I said to the commander, I said, sir, somebody has to have a conversation with this captain about micromanaging. And he turned to me, he said, no, you don't understand, Rabbi. In comparison with your Sabbath, the rest of us are all secular, myself included. He recognized that the holiness of Shabbat was something that even as a pastor, a Christian pastor is something that he couldn't possibly touch. And he said, certainly this captain doesn't understand it, but he said, let's work on it. And when she got that religious accommodation, that was really something that I felt was, was this entire thing, the entire joining the military was, was completely worth it. But I didn't know that my work with the military was not just going to be Eva, it was going to turn into an entire lifetime. So I told the story of how I, uh, yeah, of, of, of my son last night and, and with complex cardiac disease and dealing with a child that has complex medical uh, issues did not really allow us to be able to invest in the students the way we wanted to, so we moved to Miami. And soon after we moved to Miami, I went to the Aleph Institute, you know, they're my endorsers. I said, do you guys need somebody to deal directly with the military? I would love to take that position. They said, you've got it. And now it was a dream job because now I'm being both a chaplain within and without. In other words, when I'm wearing uniform, I'm a chaplain, of course, and outside of uniform, I can also serve as a chaplain. And the religious accommodation thing is now not just something that I deal on a one-time basis if there's a Jew who wants to keep their religion. Now that is really everything that I do, and we're going to talk about that. Um, because the Aleph Institute is really an advocate for people to be able to keep religion in limited environments. They deal with, as many people know, their larger part of the organization is with regards to prisoners. But in the military, they had never had an insider in order to be able to push some of these elements. So now as an insider, I could, I could really, really do things that the other, in the past the other rabbis couldn't do. So I'll give you an example. Um, we were in touch with a Marine. And I was told that he was supposed to be able to keep Rosh Hashanah. And then after Rosh Hashanah, I called him to check in with him. And he said, no, he was not given permission to keep Rosh Hashanah. I said, this is ridiculous. What happened? He said, you know, they just, they just said, no, no, we're not giving it. And actually, his commander said yes, but his NCO, his sergeant said no. So that was actually totally wrong. So I said, what about Yom Kippur? He said, well, my sergeant said, well, my girlfriend's Jewish, and she doesn't keep that holiday, so why should you? That's one of the best theological arguments I've ever heard, right? 
So I was like, this is ridiculous. Give me the phone number of your chaplain. So we started working the systems, and you have to balance things out because you can't just go and drop grenades because then you'll lose your credibility. So I had the senior Jewish chaplain in the Navy reach down to this chaplain and tell him, hey, can you take care of this? But as we're getting closer and closer to Yom Kippur, he's not getting permission, and I spoke to him immediately before, the day before Yom Kippur, and he was, he was finally told that he was confined to barracks for 25 hours of Yom Kippur, but he was not being given to go to the Chabad house right off of base because they don't trust the rabbi. I said, there's a Jewish lay leader who can take him. He said, well, he's army. He's, we don't trust them. So I was really upset. I called my endorser for top cover, my, my boss, and an endorser's position is actually the equivalent of a one-star general. So even though he retired as a, as a colonel, he was given the, the, the uh, honorary one star in order to be able to make these kinds of things. So he said, oh, go ahead. So it was 10 o'clock at night. I called this chaplain. I said, chaplain, and my son was, was at that point was actually in the ICU with RSV, uh, respiratory virus. I said, chaplain, I'm walking into my son's ICU unit. It's 10 o'clock at night. I don't have time to do this, but I want you to know, if Jewish service members could, could keep Yom Kippur in battle in World War II, you can figure it out to get this Jew permission, this Marine to be able, permission to go, be able to go to the Chabad house. And I'm telling you this, if you don't get that permission by 0900 tomorrow morning, my endorser is going to be on the phone with the chief of chaplains tomorrow saying that you are not doing your job. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> well, 10 minutes later, I got a phone call back. He said, oh, he's been given permission. Wasn't that so sweet? <laughs> so those, those really, really amazing things. As an Air Force chaplain, I can't do that because I'm not in his chain of command. I'm not a Marine. And so therefore, he would just tell me, shut up and get back in your lane. You're not, this is not your place. But my olive position allows me to be able to push those buttons and to be able to, to push those things. And that's really, really real, uh, an incredible blessing. It also allows me to connect with people in an incredible way. Even though I've never served in battle, the only place that I've ever gone foreign, if you want to refer to it, is to Guantanamo Bay. I spent uh, Rosh Hashanah there with, with some of the Jews there. But there was an experience that was really remarkable. I was going through our database of Jews in the military. I called a girl. Her name is Sergeant White. I said, Sergeant White. She's, there's a little bit of a pause. And she says, who is this? I said, well, my name is Chaplain Esther. And I'm calling for the Aleph Institute. We're ch checking in with Jewish soldiers, uh, service members. You know, I wanted to find out how you're doing. She said, well, first of all, I haven't been sergeant in several years. Second of all, I haven't been white in several years because I've gotten married. Third of all, after everything I saw in Afghanistan, I don't want to have anything to do with religion. I'm like, ooh, well, what do we do now? So sometimes as a Chabad rabbi, as a chaplain, you kind of go into a space basically like, okay, give me strength from somewhere. Give me an answer. I need something. And I said, well, do you mind if I share Judaism's approach to tragedy with you? She said, go ahead. I said, uh, well, there's a famous medrash about the 10 martyrs, the 10 rabbis who were killed in Roman times and killed brutally. And the angels screamed to God, is this Torah and its reward? And God's response is, shtok, silence, this is what came up in my mind. And this is just this very, very strange story. 
But the first Chabad Rebbe explains a beautiful idea. He says, shtok means silence. And when facing tragedy, the only way to face it, the only way to deal with it is not to give excuses or explain anything, but is to join in silence. And so I said, that's the only thing I can do is join with you in silence and say that this is beyond the mind to comprehend, and that's all. And you could hear over the phone that she appreciates, she says, you know, she's like, well, I don't need the holidays because I do this and that. And the other, we started a whole conversation. We spoke for 45 minutes. And after 45 minutes, she said, well, I need to go. I said, well, I'd love to send, you know, be in touch. She said, well, at the beginning of our conversation, you said that you'd like to send me some books. Please send them to me. You're the first chaplain I've spoken to, first rabbi I've spoken to since I was in Afghanistan, and it's been really good for me. I almost danced across the room. It was really uh, remarkable. Some of the books that we st I spoke about, just mentioned that we send, we send a, a tehillim that we made specifically in, in uh, camouflage colors, a sidur as well. We also have a chumash, I didn't bring one with me. Shabbat services companion. And we send these out for free as well as many other books in order to be able to provide those things to, to Jews in the military and, and you know to be able to give them something for them wherever they are. So that's uh, really that, that connection, being in the military and being able to provide this kind of connection is really, really something special. Um, so we have, today we have about 14,000 Jews in the military and we endorse 27 of the Jewish chaplains. Uh, there will soon be 32. We've got several in the pipeline. Like we said before, we send Seder plates, lulav, and etrog, shofars, pop-up sukkahs. And you might not realize that a pop-up sukkah is really important because in Kuwait, you can't find schach. There are no trees in Kuwait. And so it's really, really important for us to be able to send those bamboo mats because otherwise our chaplains out there um, would, wouldn't have anything. They have, we send tefillin, free tefillin, um, right over here is one of our guys, uh, Navy, a hospital corpsman out somewhere near uh, San Diego. I sent this awesome selfie wearing a pair of tefillin that we sent him. And we send mezuzot. Um, we deal with kosher food. We try to make sure that, that, that Jews in the military have kosher food. And we do that not only by connecting them with other organizations, but by pushing the drill sergeants, by pushing the chaplain teams in basic specifically to be able to provide kosher MREs, kosher meals ready to eat. I survived on those for six weeks in a row. Um, and so I'm proof positive that it will not turn you in, into an alien by eating all those. But there are some people who say that that's, that's not fit for a human being, but we were able to, to handle it. But the kosher food thing is quite remarkable. Just the other day, I was speaking to a kid who's on the, the, uh, the USS Teddy Roosevelt, and he said that he was not, they did not get the kosher shipment onto the ship. They were, uh, on, they were at sea for several months, and he survived on a single repeated meal of and I'm quoting, beans, lettuce with kosher ranch sauce, tuna, and hot sauce. And that's how he survived eating kosher for four months in a row. We managed to get him Pesach food uh, through a massive, massive uh, effort through, throughout the Navy bureaucracy to find out what happened to the pallet of food. And it was, it was literally months to try to figure out what happened to that pallet that, that he, was, he had been sent. Um, he also had a fascinating halachic decision. This is really something also that we deal with. As oftentimes people will bring to this, they bring questions to us. I don't answer question, halachic questions, but I'll forward them to rabbis who do. So this was interesting because the Teddy Roosevelt crossed over the date line 
on Saturday night. And what that meant was that he was finished Shabbat, made Avdallah, and then went back into Shabbat. And we're trying to figure out what does he do? And it was a very, very, very strange conversation. In the end, the decision that was made was that he would actually keep a mini Shabbat just in case. And so he had to put on tefillin and things like that, but he should try to avoid doing anything that is halakhically forbidden. That was really, really a fascinating one. He also, um, because that was during Sfirat Omer, he also had to celebrate Shavuot on a different day than the rest of us because his counting was off everybody else's. So it's really, really fascinating. And all these kinds of things are very unique to the military, of course, because you're stuck in that, those parameters. And that's the reason why you'll see these magazines around the Jewish American warrior. And we created this magazine to be able to, to contend with the loneliness and the feeling of, like, I'm the only one going through this. We want Jewish military members to know that you're not the only one. And we produce uh, articles from, from Jews in the military across all the branches of their perspectives, some of them more religiously oriented than others. But the point is to be able to get perspective and to get feelings so that people see really that it is possible to be a Jew in the United States military. And today, actually, I think because of Aleph's advocacy, um, starting with the beard uh, waiver and all that, today it is actually easier to be an observant Jew in the US military than ever in the history before. Because in the past year and a half, the Department of Defense has sent down a, a directive saying that not only will we allow religious accommodation, but because of the morale that it provides, we want commanders to allow it, and we're pushing commanders to be able to allow it, and that's a critical, critical part of, of course, what we do as chaplains every single day, as what we do in my role with the Aleph Institute, and, uh, and for that, it's truly, truly an honor and a privilege to serve in the United States military and to serve with the Aleph Institute with, uh, the, on the daily basis to be able to make sure that Jews get whatever they possibly can need. So that's that. If we have any questions for the next few minutes, be happy to answer. Thank you. Sir. So, uh, uh, two, two questions I, I wanted to ask you. Um, how, do, do, do you have much, I don't want to say conflict, but the other chaplains that aren't Orthodox chaplains and maybe have a different standard that makes it easier for them and, and how? What's the dynamic of that? The other question I wanted to ask you since you're Air Force. So the last two commanders of the US Air Force were Jewish. Uh, did, did you have any interface? Were they able to have any bearing on your job? Okay. Question number one, a good chaplain doesn't make a difference what, what religion or what standards they have. And so if we ever have problems, it's oftentimes with an individual chaplain. What we've created is there, there are three endorsing agencies. One is, is rather small, and they're not really a major player in this conversation. But we worked with the Jewish Welfare Board, you know, Rabbi uh, um, sheesh, Hesh, Rabbi Epstein, I spoke before about the work that, that JLI did within Jewish Welfare Board in order to be able to get the JLI uh, projects into the army. And that was something that we worked to be able to spin off. Um, so the JWB and us, we try to work 
together as much as possible. There certainly are conflicts that come up, but we've been able to create a system in which if I find out about something, I'll pass it up to my endorser who will speak to their endorser and they'll bring the information down. So we have had a situation where an Orthodox Jew was coming into a marine base and she was asking for kosher food and the chaplain basically responded to the email, said it's not possible. And I was, of course, frustrated with that, sent it back up, went back down, and he clarified his email. He was responding to the specific wording that this girl had written into him, and, you know, not possible, not, was not literal, but basically saying it's, it's difficult, but he said he'd do his best to be able to fix it. And so that system has really been able to uh, fix many of the issues that have been, so it doesn't become mano a mano, it becomes a systemic kind of thing that we work with in the system and we make sure that everybody's egos are held in check and the job gets done. And that's number one. Number two is with regards to General Goldfein and General Schwartz. Um, Aleph actually did meet with General Goldfein. I do know that he was a friend of the chaplaincy. Um, General Schwartz, I did not have anything to do with him specifically. I don't know what his, uh, you know, what, what his um, relationship was because at that point I was I was really too no, too new to be able to follow what was going on, um, but I do know that he was he was Jewish and he was happy to tell people about it. Um, but it's it's a little bit you know beyond at that point at certain in, in particular it was beyond my pay grade to really kind of look up that direction. I just simply didn't know, so I'd have to give you more information on that, sir. Two questions. Uh, first question about the, uh, the books that you, you mentioned that you sent out to uh, other people, like you got specific incidents with that young woman. Uh, are any of these books edited in such a way as to more that individual uh, going through a certain issue, or are they just the basic publish? Uh, consider the set down, maybe just with a different co cover. Is there any editing going on, or maybe special comments that are inserted for that individual? Excellent question. Um, we did have a standard sitter, and then we took this other sitter, which has explanations on the bottom for that exact reason. Um, but at the same time, this is actually a little bit flawed because it's a little bit too big for, even though our fatigue pockets are big, but this is very, very big. So that's, that's certainly a problem and we're hoping that in future uh, renditions that we'll, we'll try to make it smaller. The Chumash is actually smaller. Uh, we tried to choose specific, uh, like the Chumash that has commentary that would be relevant to uh, the average Jew in the military. And so there's a Chumash called the Lifestyles Chumash and that's the one that we used. With regards to the other books, I don't know if you're familiar with a book like, for example, Positivity Bias, um, or um, several other books that really encourage people's morale. So they're not specifically military-oriented, but they very much push some of the uh, elements that, that the chaplaincy needs to be able to have, to be able to give people the capability of dealing with things. So we have uh, probably about, uh, at this point, 15 or 16 titles besides for the standard, um, like we said, Chumash, Siddur, and Tilim, that we give them, it's not specifically military-focused, 
but it's very much should be giving them the capability of dealing the, with the struggles that the Jew in the military has. There is one book called Machana Yisrael, and that is a book written by the Chavetz Chaim in the 1890s as a halachic guide for Jews in the, in the military. And we do have plans to update that to be able to apply to Jews in the military today. And that's something that, that, that is, is in the works as well as like a guide, basic guide for Jews in the military. That's, those are things that we, we do want to do. What was that? Um, I, we don't have, no, not the Vidui. This one, this, is, this has Shema and Filas but it doesn't have Vidui. We're not that, that uh, you know. Go ahead, what was your question? And then I'll take questions out in the outside. So, uh, I was, uh, forgive me, a little late to maybe address this. But as a Jewish chaplain, and if you happen to be the only guy in town, and a non-Jew, you're, you're a chaplain, and a non-Jew, a Christian, or even a Muslim, has issue with their own, they need ministration. We do get involved with everybody, but not with regards to their religious needs. We would point them in the direction of somebody to, that would be able to help them with that. But with regards to um, counseling, yes, we, we definitely do. And one final little anecdote was, uh, you know, I was called in by the commander of one of the schools. He said, quick, we got somebody. I was like, okay, I figured this, this person's suicidal. She wasn't, but she was a mess. And we went th through several of her issues. And after the several issues, I turned to her. She's a non-Jewish girl. I said, listen, I gotta tell you a story. There was once a rabbi by the name of Mendel Futterfass, and he spent time in a Soviet prison. <laughs> and inside, I was kind of laughing because of the fact that here I'm talking to a non-Jewish girl and giving over what we would call a chassidish amaisa. And the point of that story was to tell, basically, to summarize the story was basically, he pointed out to two others, he said, the difference between you guys who are suffering and me is that I know who I am. I served God before, I serve God now, I serve God afterwards. The prison doesn't change that. And I told her, I said, as a person, you need to stop looking at all these external things about yourself and start working on identifying who you are within. And that will help you with, with everything. Else. I think that leads directly into what our next speaker is, who is a Marine who served in combat in uh, Vietnam. So it's an honor to hand the mic over to him. Thank you, thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.